0: I'm Alex Mozed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So, today, we're going to talk about a firm. A firm has uh, recently filed its S1 with uh, the SEC, founded by a guy named Max Levchin, founded in 2012. You may recognize Max's name because he understands platforms. He under he's he's, he's founded uh, other fintech companies before by a company uh, you might recognize called PayPal, part of that PayPal mafia. Chairman of the board of directors of Yelp. Uh, the guy gets platforms. Is a firm a platform business? It's it's an interesting question. Um, I think they have platform dynamics. I think they have payment platform-esque model for them, which I'll get into later on about why. But ultimately, I would say overall, no, actually. The answer is no. They're really not. The, the platform components, the platform business components that they have are not material enough to warrant uh, the entire company you know, being classified as a platform business as being included in Plat, for example. When we look at their platform revenue, it's actually very hard to discern what, if any, of, of the revenue that they break out in the S1 is actually attributable to a platform business model. And so, what is a firm? Basically, if, um, if you want to go buy a Peloton, Peloton accounts for 28% of their revenue. And actually 30% in the most recent quarter. If you want to buy a Peloton or furniture for your house, um, other home improvement items are, are big for them, you know, larger like lar- big ticket purchases, right? You want to buy a mattress, they do a lot of stuff with Casper. You have these pretty good sized purchases, and you get into the checkout part on Peloton. Well, bam, here it is, right? Buy with credit card, you got all your options here. And then buy with a firm with zero percent interest. How do they do that? Right, um, sounds pretty attractive if you're Peloton, right? So basically, you know what a firm is doing. The way I would describe it is a firm has a B 2 B to C model, and they're making money by lending. And when you look into their S one, it gets a little wonky uh, with the financial reporting of that. Um, And and we're going to dig into that in a second, but it's very much so a linear model, a a linear model via lending. You could say that they are offering a new payment solution, right? If we look at this Peloton thing, or there's other merchants, actually, there's a nice graph, nice little, you know, imagery that they put into their S1 here, you you know, 65 plus a hundred different merchants. and. See, this is the kind of stuff that confuses people and says, oh, I mean, it looks, it looks like they got the flywheel, right? The thing goes around. They're a platform. Mm, no, not really. The one part of them that is platformy is this marketplace here, which is kind of like a product marketplace more than it is a payment platform. Um, the rest of these integrated checkout, virtual cards, split pay, savings, I mean, the first three are really just different ways of providing credit uh, or debt, you know, loans to consumers that want to buy these bigger ticket items. And a firm is helping the merchants sell more stuff by giving creative financing solutions to the merchant's customers. And those customers of the merchant now also do become customers of a firm, which is great for a firm. Although this pit the the marketplace bit here that is a platform model but it doesn't really get much other attention in the S1 which means you know they introduced it in 2019 i think it's a small hopefully growing part of the business and they talk about they have millions of consumers which is great but i don't think they're really able to go end to end right they don't they don't really own that core transaction right um, this transaction takes place on the merchant site um it's really between the merchant's customer and 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 the merchant and then when that transaction completes, the customer of the merchant becomes the 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 borrower of a firm. The marketplace model is saying, well I'm taking all my two million whatever it is existing borrower consumers and i'm Introducing them to the sixty five hundred plus different merchants that we have, can we connect those people? Right? Can we connect those buyers and those merchants together and monetize that? That is a you know true platform, product, marketplace type of model. But I think this is a much smaller part of their business. The main part of their business, which you'll see, is really just integrated checkout. Now, here's the cool thing. This is right showing you all the different options to pay apple pay google pay paypal that guy he founded you know he's founding a and and f- former CTO of paypal and then affirm so it is just really cool the guy just max just you know he gets he gets these fintech models and basically what affirm has been able to do is two things really well they've been able to give a really good technology solution to these merchants now over 6500 of them to seamlessly integrate You know, they literally call it here seamless checkout experience. Seamlessly integrate into the purchasing experience on these more expensive items that need creative financing solutions. They're going to help these merchants sell more stuff. They've given a really seamless technology tool, right? So it's tech first, it's digital enabled. And then they're using data and they're creating their own underwriting algorithms. Interestingly enough, they actually have all this wonkiness kind of financial engineering on how they're providing the debt uh, to finance these loans. That's a whole other part, which we'll get into. But those two things, those are really the main value prop. Really good tech. And they, by their estimates in the S1, they say that uh, they're able to approve 20% more consumers. And they have a 1.1% delinquency rate, which is really good for the business they're in. So they're saying we're going to, we're able to approve more people and have a and have a low delinquency rate. That's kind of what you want to see, right? That's the Holy Grail. and they attribute that to their underwriting model and and you know all their data and 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 learning. Um, I think that's this chart. Proprietary risk model generates better outcomes, right? So if they just went off your FICO score, that's the red line. basically, they go off the blue line. And that means they can approve more people. The way it works is, you know, you can either you can get these zero percent APR uh, deals, and then the merchant is going to pay. Um, is it, you know, someone's got to pay a firm for that. A firm's just not going to give away like free money with zero percent interest. Uh, they can't make any money, and and that means that the merchant is basically, you know, is basically giving fees to a firm to provide the merchant's customers with zero percent. You know, sometimes multi-year loans, right, to buy a Peloton bike, and then they have uh, deals where you you know you are you are paying interest as a consumer, and you know then a firm is really making more of their money on the interest as opposed to the merchant paying a firm a fee, and they basically refer that um, as merchant network revenue. Here it is: Uh, merchant network revenue is where a firm is providing zero percent interest. And the merchant's giving them, you know, a, a fee, about 250 million dollars uh, in the fiscal year, ending June 30, 2020, up almost double from the year before. And then interest income this is right. I'm giving you a five percent loan, and, and then they're, they're keeping that spread. Maybe the merchant pays them a little bit also um, on the interest loans, but you know, they're getting probably majority of their um, income. Uh, from the interest as opposed to the merchant fee, but they basically have some mixture. These are the two main levers, right? I mean, look at the, and then they have the virtual card network revenue, which is, you know, minuscule. So, I mean, those are the two main drivers. And then the rest of it is other things, which we'll get into servicing income, gain and loss on sales of loans, and the virtual card network revenue. Basically, that's how I'd simplify it. See this stuff loss on purchase, on loan purchase commitment and provision for credit losses. And you're like, you know, funding costs. I mean, that's a little bit more straightforward. But those first two things are kind of like, uh, okay, provision for credit losses. I kind of get that loss on loan purchase commitment. And you're like, well, how does that make any sense? I thought a firm, you're lending the money. In the... Doesn't, right? How does that make sense? Basically, what these guys are doing is they have a lending partner. It gets a little wonky. Basically, they have a more traditional bank, which will buy these loans. Sometimes you know, they will actually be providing the loan below market value. Uh, and, then, and then a firm has to buy the loans back from the bank. And then a firm will also then sometimes sell those loans, I would imagine underperforming loans, off at a discount to other partners because they don't want them on their balance sheet. This is where you know, the picture of the company gets a little murkier. Clearly, they have loan purchase commitments with this main funding partner of theirs. And then um, they have loans on their balance sheet. And then they're selling off loans to other people as well, um, other partners, which, which they don't list in here. And that's where you get a lot of this back and forth, which again, I think is, is, is part of regulatory thing, you know how they want to balance their balance sheet. What they want to keep on the books versus off the books um and and so on and so forth how do you value the business and and you know what do we make of all of this um so let's go back to right how are all these businesses valued growth are all growth plays here is the gmv this is the key key stat the rest of it is kind of below the line how are they managing their costs and financing these things it's not as simple as evaluating kind of more traditional banks, but, you know, again, a firm is lending. Um, they're kind of like a tech-enabled bank um, in this respect with this b 2 b to c kind of distribution model using these merchants and providing creative financing solutions. GMV, though, is the key mechanism, the key driver to see how well is a firm doing. This number grows by them signing up more merchants and their merchants continuing to grow the business. Uh, so this is, you know, this is the impressive stat: two point six billion dollars of, uh, you know, things purchased through a firm. So these are dollars, you know, think these are loans issued, uh, and then four point six billion the following year. Very, very substantial growth. Active consumers, you can see that going up. Also, um, this transactions per active consumer. Mm, I I kind of discount that. I look at that less. Contribution profit is a percent of GMV. You know, this is saying that they're able to pull down more dollars, um, and you know, carve out more revenue, carve out more dollars and profit uh, from that overall GMV number. Right? How well are they monetizing uh, the GMV and having that flow through their P and L? growth here from year to year right of gmv growth year over year 4.6 to 2.6 versus their uh, loan purchase commitment loss 160 million versus 73 million Mm. you know okay that kind of makes sense right technology and data analytics 122 versus 76 uh their s their GNA 121 versus kind of 89, you are seeing right kind of these expenses grow somewhat linearly with matching to GMV. If if the costs can kind of match to GMV and if they can eke out more revenue and more profit as a result, um, right, you're kind of saying okay, yeah, that's that's trending in the right direction. Let's jump down to the balance sheet. Cash fine. Loans held for investment. 735 up to a little over a billion, right? So you can kind of see funding debt. So um, this is their kind of dry powder. You know, what what can they use to seed more loans? They say if you combine the debt they have on their, the, the allocation they have on their balance sheet for them to underwrite loans themselves, plus their partners, they say they have over $4 billion worth of capacity. So they've got plenty of capacity, according to them. That's not an issue. Um, they're holding some of these loans on their balance sheet as an investment, right? And and making that interest income. I would imagine kind of the way they do this is they say, well, uh, if I'm given a zero percent APR loan, then I don't want to hold that on my balance sheet. I'm going to give that over to my partner. They don't spell this out for you. But this is this would be my understanding of of why they get it gets kind of so trickery here. If you have a zero percent interest loan, a firm has made their money, right? They've made their fee. The merchants paying them a fee. Then they're saying, okay, well, uh, Cross River Bank, take this off my balance sheet. I'll give you a spread. Someone's got to, right, provide for the loan. Cross River Bank. Maybe they get three percent or something like that, three or four percent. Cross River Bank gets their vig. If a firm's getting, I'm just making up numbers. If a firm, if a firm's getting a seven percent fee from the merchant, they've got a spread of three and a half or four percent with Cross River Bank. A firm's cashing in, call it two, two or three percent after all the other fees and funding fees and processing fees and whatever. Then they're banking two to three percent. Maybe that's their contribution profit margin that they you know, they, that we were showing you early. It's, right, it's around like two. Now it's up to in the threes percentage range. Maybe that's kind of what they're getting at with that. But the firm doesn't want to keep that stuff on balance sheet. If it's, if, you know, it's not, it's not, they're not earning anything off of it. So they don't want it on the balance sheet. Bam, they ship that off to Cross River Bank. Now, if there's delinquencies from Cross River Bank, Cross River Bank is basically, you know, getting insulation from this. And they're saying, well, I'm not taking a loss on this affirm. You got to buy that back from me, and then sell it off. And then a firm is eating that out of their, say two or three percent margin. Again, they haven't spelled out these, these uh, numbers. I'm just using them for example. And you know, one percent of those, that one, one to one one point one percent delinquency rate, whatever a firm's spread is, has to cover that delinquency rate. Then you have loans that are actually paying them interest. Presumably, that's these roughly one billion dollars worth of loans held for investment. They want to keep them on the they like it's fine. They're earning I don't know five percent interest or whatever it is, and the consumers are paying them the interest. And that is kind of the more traditional banking model. That's my guess at, at why you kind of have all these this back and forth and 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 the P and L and it doesn't look like a classic bank. Because they have these kind of two models this merchant network revenue uh, and this interest income revenue. What doesn't make sense to me is why you only have a billion dollars on your balance sheet. Is it that those loans, you know, maybe some of the loans are paying you too low of an interest and then you're kind of selling those off to other people? Maybe. And they're only keeping, you know, kind of the AAA uh, loans on the balance sheet? Maybe. Curious if that's what they're basing their delinquency rate off of, or the net number GMV, which is really what they should be doing. I I'm, I'm, think the company's above water, so I would imagine that is what they're doing. I don't have a reason to think that's not how they're measuring 1.1% delinquency rate. But the point is, they should be getting a lot more interest rate uh, loans than a billion dollars right? if they're doing $4.6 billion in total throughput. Then they should have at least two billion dollars of these interest rate uh, loans, and someone's got to be taking those, so you know those are going somewhere. who knows exactly where but they're going somewhere because they're not sticking on a firm's balance sheet. Last thing, one of my favorite topics cash flows baby cash flows it looks like they kind of have free cash flow, but they don't um the only reason why they don't have way worse free cash flows because they're raising money. They're losing money from their investing activities. They're losing money from their operating activities. They're a bank, right? So banks, where do they get their money from? Well, people put money into a bank account, and then you know they take the depository receipts, and then they can reinvest those, and then put them out into loans. And that's why the uh, FDIC and 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 Finra set um, and and maybe, you know, maybe the Fed sets the um minimum kind of capital proficiency rates of banks right they have to have a a certain ratio certain amount of capital they can't you know they just need to have cash right um so if you have all these these money in different kind of uh depository accounts savings accounts checking accounts you know the banks have to have a certain ratio they can't lend all that money out in 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 via loans right there's rules on how their balance sheet needs to look and 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 for liquidity reasons and stability reasons and all that stuff these guys don't i mean they have a savings account but it's not bringing in you know nearly enough cash so they got to finance these loans they got to finance their operating activities somehow some way so that is from these financing activities and you can see that here net cash provided by equity related financing activities right and then proceeds from issuance of convertible preferred stock um, that's that flows into this equity related number, two 292 million in last year, 51 million uh, this year. And um, and then debt-related financing activities. So they're taking on debt. This is a linear business. Um, it's a linear business run by very smart people where I think they're very well positioned, uh, but it doesn't have the lock-in that that platforms do. And I'm Frankly, kind of surprised why no one has really gone after this space as aggressively. Like, why doesn't PayPal do this? I mean, PayPal is trying to do some credit stuff; have been for years. But you know, they even have the screenshot of PayPal up there, right? It's Apple Pay, Google Pay. They're not going to do this anytime soon. PayPal, Affirm. Where? What are you doing on this, PayPal? Um, I think that's Dan Shulman, former uh, executive member from Amex. Um, who else? Synchrony would be another one that comes to mind. If you don't know what Synchrony is, you know all those company, company like you go to Macy's and you get a Macy's credit card. That's Synchrony. Synchrony is underwriting the debt. They're providing the the technology and the capability to have a credit card. They're doing the credit check. They've got all that infrastructure to power uh, these merchant powered credit lending programs, right? I mean it's kind of like the 20th century version of a firm. Why isn't Synchrony doing this? Right? This seems like a huge missed opportunity to me for Synchrony. And Synchrony, 18 billion dollar market cap. Um what are they doing? And 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 what uh Goldman is doing is Goldman's going basically directly after Synchrony. Goldman is powering that Apple credit card, right? And Goldman really, you know, I, and the, Goldman might have even eaten it on the economics for that deal with Apple. Um, the the CEO of Synchrony was actually trashing Goldman um for having done the deal. And wow, Synchrony is just she'll probably get fired. Um look at this. I mean, they just keep missing their earnings. Yikes. Goldman encroaching right on Synchrony's turf. Synchrony, I think, big missed opportunity to do what a firm is doing. Step into this model. They already have all these merchant relationships. A firm coming in. Um, big miss. Now they're too big. Now, you know, synchrony, you can't buy them. There's a sleep at the wheel. Um, kind of yikes and PayPal sleep at the wheel. Um, Goldman, I I wouldn't, I, you know, um, they they spend big money. I would not put them out of the uh, any league to say if they wanted to get into this, they can get into this um but synchrony is out of the race paypal could should be in the race goldman could be in the race but they also got a lot of other stuff going on so that'll be interesting do i like a firm um i mean yeah they don't look they don't really have much competition they should and and they could um i wouldn't say that they have such a strong network effect that you know they have some kind of winner-take-all platform dynamic. I really don't think it exists. I just think that um, they do have strong defensibility, even with a more linear tech-enabled lending model, because uh, you have these strong partnerships with merchants and, and all these kinds of things. You know now with their public, they can be more aggressive and, 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 and they have such a head start. It's just going to be very hard to catch up. Um, but it could be if someone really wanted to, you know a PayPal, a Goldman, not really a synchrony. Like an Amex, frankly, you know, that's com- comfortable underwriting uh, debt on their balance sheet, which if you look at a Visa and MasterCard, they actually don't take balance sheet risk. It actually goes to a partner bank. Um, it, it really doesn't sit on Visa, MasterCard, balance sheet. Amex does take balance sheet risk, however. It's a little bit different. But a firm has balance sheet risk. And, and that's clearly a material part of how they monetize. right? so um interesting stuff i think max is is very strong i think it could be a good investment um i don't feel too strongly about the platform dynamics here but it doesn't mean that it's not a good investment or it's not a good price looks like they might ipo around 10 billion dollars they were valued at about three billion dollars in april of 2019 so um they I mean, I think a firm's done very well, clearly, even with the pandemic and COVID and everything here, because there's been a lot more spending on exercise equipment and home improvement stuff and these kind of purchases for the home uh generally, which which a firm does very well in. I do think there's a lot of upside and there really isn't that much competition yet, but there could be with some really big players that that want to get into the game. Curious who they would even buy, though, to catch up. I think a firm does have a nice head start on on where they are at with things.
1: Um so what is OnlyFans? Big 180. From a
0: firm to OnlyFans. OnlyFans is um it's a content platform and no, I don't have an account. Okay? Um but if I did and if You happen to have one. Basically, what you would find is NSFW, not safe for work content, basically porn um, from adult entertainers, which, you know, especially now because of COVID, got to make a living somehow. And OnlyFans has been on a tear thanks to Corona. Look at this chart. Bam. Blue line is OnlyFans. Red line is Patreon. Um, orange is Twitch. Cameos all the way down to orange. Or like dark orange. Colors are kind of difficult here, but anyway, the blue is OnlyFans. Look at what happens in March. You know, January, February, March. Boom. I mean, the thing was already going up end of last year and then it's just exploded this year. You know, the way it works is you're an adult entertainer and you got a social media following, but you can't put, uh, you can't, you know, show flesh and all these kinds of things on Instagram and Snapchat and people have tried, uh, in the earlier days of, of the content of the, of the social media content platforms, and then they get banned, um, And you know we saw that with Snapchat, a bunch of places, right? And that used to be a big thing. Uh, Tumblr actually had a bunch of porn on it, and then they decided to get rid of it, and like literally like forty percent of Tumblr's traffic disappeared. Fun story. Now enter OnlyFans. Um, It's expensive. Uh, I I I don't know what it is, but I think you got to pay like at least ten dollars a month per person that you want to follow or something like that, and then they create content for you, and and then there's you know there's primos right like you can chat i think you might be able to like do one-on-one live streams or whatever i mean there's a bunch of primos but they have over they have over a hundred creators making over one million dollars a year it's big big money they have over one million creators total they have over two billion dollars paid to creators over the lifetime and they got an 80 20 split right so that means, just back into it, two billion dollars paid, they're cashing in 400 million dollars in their fee with the 80, 20 split. And this is a true content platform model. It's just on fire. I mean, you see, if you've seen on social media, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, etc, you have these uh, adult entertainer types that have social media accounts, have a following, um, but they can't show you all the things that they want to show you. Uh, but they will promote now their OnlyFans account. Say, hey, go over here, sign up for OnlyFans, and it's only ten bucks a month or something like that. Bam! Now you get full access. So that's OnlyFans. I mean, good, good for those guys. Um, so that's OnlyFans. <clears throat> um, okay, so in you know in the um, never-ending catalog of uh, you know why communism sucks, we have exhibit number. You know 220 here from john mackey whole foods ceo he has some you know interesting things to say check it out
1: capitalism or actually i prefer Deidre mccloskey's word for innovationism innovationism is the greatest thing that humanity's ever created i mean if you go back 200 years ago when when, when and when innovationism was really beginning to pick up steam of everybody alive on the planet Earth lived on less than $2 a day. 94%. Only 6% made more than $2 a day. That's in today's dollars. Today, that's under 10%. The average lifespan 200 years ago was 30. Now it's 72.6. In advanced countries, developed countries, it's closer to 80. Um, Illiteracy rates 200 years ago across the planet were 88%. Now they're 12%. I mean, if you read Steven Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now, you will just see documentation after documentation after documentation about how much the world has progressed. It has been science and technology combined with innovationism as the entrepreneurs took the scientific discoveries and operationalized them to make our lives better. It is the greatest thing that humanity has ever done. Business people are not the villains of the story, they're the heroes of the story. The entrepreneurs are the ones that, that, that create great progress. And um, yeah, they're universally vilified for the most part.
0: I think it puts it really well there. Capitalism is great. Communism sucks. Uh, he, not his words, my words. Another example. Look at this. Chinese rights activists who oppose Hong Kong security law tortured. I. You know, uh, Guangzhou based rights activist Zhang Wu Zhao has been subjected to torture and detention after she opposed Beijing's imposition of a draconian national security law on Hong Kong, according to her son. Uh, Zhang was held after she posed for photos uh, on the 31st anniversary at, of the Tiananmen massacre, holding up a slogan that read, Withdraw the draconian law. She uploaded these photos to WeChat. And then was in trial uh, shortly thereafter and f- um, has now been tortured. She had clearly been injured and, and she was kind of hunched over. She had been tortured by police to extract a confession. They wanted my mother to confess to having colluded with foreign powers. She said she was restrained with six shackles and handcuffs and left that way next to the toilets for six days and six nights with them kicking her in the back the whole time. It's just sad to see Hong Kong is lost. Um, You know, our freedoms are being encroached upon all around the world and including in the United States. Uh, But I have faith in our system. I have faith in uh, our constitution. I have faith in the system of government that our founding fathers created here. And um, I think it will prevail as it has for you know hundreds of years so far it's worked pretty well for us. Look at John Mackey's you know uh, statements around capitalism and and how much good that has done in our kind of way of life government freedoms in this country um It may seem uh scary at times, but this country's actually gone through a lot of these similar things in the past, and we've come out ahead actually for it and um uh. Uh, You know, if 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 you are a um, learner of our history, both U.S. history and and I mean, just other other you know uh, nations and uh, you know a lot of these things have 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 happened before. Fortunately, I think our founding fathers also were fans of history and have seen what happens um, and and have put in a a process here to make sure that. Uh, Our our rights, our freedoms can be protected or reclaimed uh, when infringed upon. Taking a correct cue from that is what India is doing, which is banning 43 more Chinese apps over cybersecurity uh, concerns. They have now banned more than 175 apps with links to China um, and now have done an additional 43. So they're over the 200 mark. Remember, they did around 49 or 50 uh, back over the summer. They've continued to ban more since then, and have just done even more. Now, here's the interesting thing: it's working. Not only is it protecting and providing a, uh, you know, what we've seen, for example, Snapchat's earnings, Snapchat going through the roof because their Chinese competitor apps are gone from India. That's good for U.S. tech companies operating in India, but it's also good for the native Indian tech startups that are trying to compete against both U.S. and Chinese tech competitors, but now really just U.S. competitors. So net-net, that's a positive thing for both of those parties. And these Chinese companies want to get back in badly. The apps that have been banned include Tencent, their short video service called Snack Video, their e-commerce app, their delivery app, their shopping app, etc. In recent weeks, PUBG has registered a local entity in India and partnered with Microsoft for computing needs. Kind of like uh, this this potential TikTok Oracle deal, which we're going to get to in a second. Which all the media was saying, "Oh, TikTok's fine; they got nothing to worry about." False. Uh, TikTok just received an extension from CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., and they're still reviewing it. They've given them another week while they review it. But the company is still on the ropes. They're not through this yet. It is a fool's errand to try to dilute the the serious. predicament that these chinese uh companies you know tiktok especially are in and in the united states and elsewhere around the world and i only think it's gonna heat up and get worse for them and frankly probably correctly so uh so they've registered a local entity in india partnered with microsoft and publicly vowed to invest hundred million dollars in the country seems like a pretty good deal for india right they're supporting their local tech companies And then the Chinese companies that really want to get in are are basically saying, hey, we're going to invest. We're going to hire more people there. We're going to to put more money into India. Remember when we had Benedict Evans on the show maybe a couple months ago now? And I was saying Chinese tech protectionism has absolutely helped nurture and garner the Chinese tech community that they have today. And the Chinese tech protectionism It's basically saying no one else can operate in China unless you do some. I mean, that wasn't even for tech companies, but they basically just banned all foreign tech companies from operating in China. Um, And if you did, I mean, mean, you just had to just bow down to any and every uh, requirement. But you look at this, you can clearly see how tech protectionism helps really harbor and nurture that tech community from being thwarted by large foreign tech monopolies, either from the US or now from China. Um, it works. And if anything, then you know the companies that were operating there or want to enter the market, come in and saying, well, we will commit all these assets and all these resources and all these investments in your country if you let us in. Because we want to guess what? Make money off of your citizens.
1: <laughs>
0: That's how it works. India's figured it out. I, I hope You know, the EU catches on to this. I hope uh, we see more of this in the US. Um, There are legitimate national security concerns here. And it's reciprocity, baby. This is what China does to every foreign tech company that wants to operate in China. So, why on earth would we ever allow a Chinese tech company to freely enter another country? if your tech companies can't enter the chinese market why would you ever agree to that deal the answer is you shouldn't be so good job india um and uh and also i mean who wants to help a communist government anyway uh, yeah not me last thing is you know we spoke about this we saw, saw it in the rumor mill salesforce buying slack looks like the deal is done salesforce is buying slack For about $28 billion. You know, I think it makes a lot of sense for Salesforce why they're doing this and the enterprise software play, the collaboration play that they get from it. You know, I think Slack was seeing some pressure from Microsoft. Microsoft Teams is doing very well. Microsoft has has been not has not been shy to publish the growth and the engagement and the usage they're getting from Microsoft Teams, which has been pretty substantial. Not to say that Slack is weak. And desperate, by any means, Slack is, is is doing very well for itself, but still, in the grand scheme of things, this is a sub-$30 billion acquisition, and Salesforce is has over a $200 billion market cap. It's a material uh, acquisition for them, but, but I think NetNet will be a good one as they can penetrate deeper beyond just kind of CRM and sales and marketing functions. And now they've gotten into more customer support functions. but now you're really getting into that broader connectivity, that broader kind of collaboration throughout the enterprise, um, which is very powerful. Atlassian really is the one that Atlassian stock should be way down because of this. It's not. Atlassian is now dancing between giants. Microsoft on one side and Salesforce on the other side. I mean, Atlassian is is not tiny, $55 billion company. But Microsoft is in the trillions. Salesforce is in the hundreds of billions. And Atlassian is a clear distant third now. And as we know, winner take all dynamics. Don't lend itself well to third place. So I'm curious to see how Atlassian reacts to this. Um, But yeah, this... This to me should 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 actually be much more adverse news for Atlassian than it should be, frankly, for Salesforce. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you for joining us. I will talk to you soon.